two, patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. One of the differences between physicians and nurse practitioners is that physicians are regulated by a state board of medicine, while in most states, nurse practitioners are regulated by a state board of nursing. This distinction is important because while nurse practitioners are functioning in the same capacity as physicians, ordering and interpreting tests, making medical diagnoses, writing prescriptions for medications, they are being overseen by a regulatory body, which includes nurses without experience in that kind of practice, which can result in a lack of appropriate action when a nurse practitioner is practicing improperly. Today, we're going to discuss the case of nurse practitioner Jeffrey Young, the so-called rock doc, who was indicted in 2019 for prescribing controlled substances to his patients to obtain money, notoriety, and sexual favors. Despite multiple reports to the Tennessee Board of Nursing, it took five years and action from an outside agency before Young finally lost his prescribing privileges. Emergency medicine physician Dr. Teresa Camp Rogers joins us to discuss the details of this case. Dr. Camp Rogers, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Teresa, can you start us out by telling us about why you got interested in this story? I became interested in this story specifically because of my more recent experience as a chief quality officer. If you look at processes of regulation, it kind of gives you like an audit. We can use examples. Cases like this can show us the processes in place. They can show us if the processes are robust enough to really hold people accountable when they need to be. And that's initially what drew me to the case. So you read this article that was featured in the Atlantic magazine. Now, this story of Jeffrey Young had been out for a while. It had gotten media across Tennessee and across the U.S. But what really caught your attention was this Atlantic piece that was an investigative journalism piece that really explored Jeffrey Young. And tell our audience a little bit about Jeffrey Young and and what you know about his story. What I know is basically from that article, what I learned from reading the Atlantic article was basically egregious disregard for ethics and standards. And it's just what you described earlier. It's He is, from my understanding, a nurse practitioner in Tennessee that really thrived on the notoriety and popularity. And his apparent need for that made him abandon a lot of ethical principles. From what I read, it was really challenging to see that the process that was in place held him accountable. And that's what really struck me. And I was just going to do a recap and then kind of ask you why it's hard to hold them accountable, because this is something Dr. Bernard and I see all the time. You know, it it takes like five years, even after the death of someone, to really get the nursing board to do something about it. And so just to recap, Jeff Young is a nurse practitioner who was in Jackson, Tennessee. Patients would say they liked that he made him feel comfortable. They felt like he took their pain seriously. And this is something we see with both doctors and nurses who treat pain. There's this kind of, sometimes there's this relationship that develops where boundaries come down. I think that's probably the best way to put it. And most people liked his sort of plain spoken approach to medicine, which sometimes patients feel like smacks with elitism. And so he had this kind of down to earth, you know, he was tattooed. He was the rock doc, which seems young and full of vitality. And what's fascinating is he was sleeping with patients. I mean, in a nutshell, if you're going to summarize what was going on, he was trading sex for drugs, essentially. And and it's not even an unusual thing. I mean, I, I think we've already talked about other psychiatric nurse practitioners who were having sex with their patients that are still working. You know, this is a kind of recurrent theme. 
And so with that, what I want to ask is, what do you see as the problem with accountability? I'm sure doing some of the quality control, you're seeing maybe loopholes or, or, or things that make it challenging. Right. When I have looked at disciplinary hearings, which are publicly available on nursing board and medical board websites, if you take time to read through those, you can very easily see a distinct difference in process and accountability. Things like this will unfortunately happen with physicians. I mean, that's the first thing to come to terms with. When we as physicians see this happen with a nurse practitioner, we're not saying, oh, this would never happen with us. We're saying, If it happens to a physician, that when that physician comes to the medical board, the processes are robust, they are swift, and they are non-negotiable. And you can see this. You can can literally go to the nursing board and medical board websites, and you can read the disciplinary summaries of a physician and see it be carried out in a timely manner. Yeah. And that was not the case here. And actually, after you read this Atlantic piece, you actually wanted to write a response to them to point out these differences. And so we'll get into that in a minute. But I want to just kind of summarize the complaints that were made against Young and just really the inaction that occurred. First of all, Young opened his own practice called Preventagenics in 2015. But before he even opened his practice in 2012, he was working for a different company and he was accused of supplying testosterone without a clear medical reason to high schoolers who wanted to bulk up. So the history was that there was a young man that went to his house, paid cash, and knowing that no doctor would prescribe testosterone to a healthy young teenage boy. So the health department did receive a complaint about this. However, the complaint was never assigned to an investigator. So that was in 2012. Then starting in 2015, he accrued 13 complaints to the state health department accused of abusing his license. And finally, in 2013, he prescribed a cocktail of medications to a patient, hydrocodone, a benzodiazepine, and Adderall, which is an ADD medication, but he failed to diagnose the patient's hypertension, overprescribed to him, and then the patient died of a stroke. So that's in 2013. In Mm -hmm. 2014, he then sees patient who came in complaining of low back pain and numbness in the left arm. There was no physical exam. And yet he prescribed him Percocet and Valium and hydrocodone. So what do you think when you hear Percocet, which is oxycodone, Valium and hydrocodone, when you hear something like that? I think all of us kind of repel. There's just initial just kind of gut reaction. And I think all of us would kind of have a very strong knowledge that that's inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to mix two different narcotic medications, oxycodone and hydrocodone. And there's always a warning on mixing benzodiazepines with opioids. And then also he threw in a muscle relaxant, just, you know, throw icing on the cake. And unfortunately, that patient died of an apparent drug overdose. And they found all sorts of pill bottles, some of which had been prescribed by Young. So all of these were getting reported. And yet there was no action that was taken until the DEA got involved and until the Justice Department actually ran a sting operation. And it's interesting because, Naran, remember when we discussed the Kevin Morgan case in which he was prescribing testosterone, it was actually only through an outside agency, the DEA, that he was stopped. The nursing board really did not actually take action. What's really interesting to me is, like Teresa was saying, In Washington state, there was this whole big, maybe about five, six years ago, there was a a big thing where many physicians just had their licenses 
provoked for prescribing testosterone unnecessarily and then growth hormone for sort of those wellness and vitality kind of clinics. And so I I really want to emphasize in this episode in particular, as Teresa said, doctors do this. This isn't saying only nurse practitioners make these mistakes or cross these boundaries or sleep with patients. It definitely happens. Physicians, I mean, there may be more examples where physicians have done that. However, there are far more, countless more examples where physicians are no longer practicing. They've lost their licenses. And the the reaction is, as you said, swift. And so what I find interesting is sometimes, and, and that seems like there's some problem maybe with the board of nursing, the amount they have to cover. You know, I suspect they're overwhelmed. I really don't want to insult the board of nursing because I think up to the more recent years, they've done a great job of keeping nurses maybe that have addiction or other things like all healthcare providers have, you know, they do a good job of holding those people accountable. So to me, this feels like a big kind of glaring red flag that we need to talk about and we need to do something about. Because unfortunately, like you're saying, when uh, deaths occur, it ends up being like an outside Department of Justice, the DEA, something that sparks it against the nurse practitioner. And I, and I think that's waiting too long. I don't know, Teresa, if you've seen any of this or have you ever seen where the DEA is the first to go after a doctor versus like the state medical board? I haven't. My exposure to this is since this legislative season, but I've, I kind of dove in head first because it's, it's the, the gap is there. The experience with regulatory compliance extends some time back, but once I got exposed to this legislative season, I've kind of really, really enjoyed finding the gaps. But I think you point that out exactly right. Like it's not a critique of the nursing board. This is what we do every year in a hospital. We look for these as opportunities for improvement. And those hospitals out there that do use DNV as their regulatory, as their accreditation agency know that it is an opportunity. You know, it's not a gotcha. This is not a gotcha. This is an opportunity to close a gap. And it comes down to, for me, I think about those patients that were referred to the board. And I think about a process where the medical decision-making could have been evaluated, right? And, and that's what really, that, that's what to me stands out. It's like, what could work? How would we get this to work moving forward? What sort of legislative options or regulatory options are there? to allow the nursing board to demonstrate collaboration at a system level, right? We're asking for collaboration between the board of nursing and the board of medicine, just like we're asking for collaboration at an individual level. I think about those individual patients and what could have been done. Well, you do Um, think about that because you think, you know, if somebody had taken some action, let's say back when he was prescribing testosterone inappropriately, or the first patient that got harmed, we wouldn't necessarily have had more patient deaths. And I think that is what the crux of this issue is about, is that these regulatory bodies are in place to make sure that bad actors do not continue. And it doesn't seem as if that process is working effectively. But I want to talk about some of the other factors that allowed this to continue. And the first thing I think we have to look at is the opioid manufacturers. I mean, Naran, what do you think about what we know about how they may have encouraged a little bit more prescribing? They seem to really target nurse practitioners. Well, I think what they target, to be honest with you, is sort of what I would say are niche prescribers. So it's funny. It's actually not funny, but it's ironic to hear the two of you talk about like benzos and two narcotics. And sometimes I feel like you're speaking a completely different language because when I one time prescribed a kid with a really bad neck crank, I wasn't Flexor or Robaxin. It's Robaxin that I prescribed. I prescribed like half a 500 milligram and the kid was maybe 12 or 13 and really gave proper you know instructions. And, and the kid was just in a lot of pain and was actually miraculously better the next day. I did one half a pill. So when you're talking about muscle relaxants and then all these other things, I'm like, wow, I, I don't even have any 
concept of what I would do with narcotics because I, I simply don't prescribe them. That's a great example because the pharmacy, the the Purdue Pharma and the, the companies that make opioids, they aren't going to stop by my office because I'm going to look at them with a blank stare. I think what they probably do, I, I don't know if we can prove it, but they look at what's being prescribed because I know drug reps can do that. And sometimes they used to ask me like, why aren't you prescribing this inhaler? And I'd say, well, it's too expensive. I'm not going to do that to patients. And so, you know, I just would refuse to do it. And so I think the same thing goes on. And when they see someone who's really going through a lot of prescriptions and those patients are filling them, I, I suspect they actually target those ones. And so they target high volume providers, generalists, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and those who really don't necessarily have extra training in pain. I know there was a doctor at me on Twitter this weekend, and he's someone who was investigated and arrested by the DEA. And it's really interesting to me that he prescribed like 3000 schedule two, and then a bunch of schedule three and schedule four drugs. And I just think that that's going to flag the interest of the the pharmaceutical companies. Young actually prescribed a million, a million opioids, according, according to this article. And so what you're saying, you said that there's not really, it's hard to prove, but there was a lawsuit filed by the state of Tennessee in May of 2019, in which they said, quote, opioid manufacturers such as Endo, the maker of Opana, and Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, targeted high volume providers, in particular generalists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. So there definitely was some of that. And then I think we also have to look at the patients to a certain extent. And part of it is that, you know, patients really trust their medical provider or practitioner and um, nurses in particular, are actually one of the most trusted groups. But also when you read about Young, people loved him. Patients felt listened to. Patients rallied to his to help him when he posted things on Facebook about how he was being persecuted. I don't know what either of you think of this. I'd be interested. My dad had this expression for many years. He would say, patients will love you to death and they'll hate you to death. And it wasn't saying that either or it's saying the ones who love you to death and like massively overly get involved, then they sort of can turn on you in a heartbeat. And I'm not insulting patients. I want to be clear, but I find there's a a personality type that is risky. And I suspect psychiatrists, when they're doing therapy with patients that are hurting or have mental health issues, certain personalities have this tendency to kind of cross over. And, and so, and I'm not blaming patients. I want to be clear. I'm just saying it's, it's on us as physicians to say, no, that's not okay. Sometimes I'll have a warning bell. Like when they really love me, I'm like, okay, I need to step back. I need to put a boundary here for their safety. And, and it's not their fault. It's, it's really our fault if we're not in tune to it. So I do want to say with pain patients, I find a lot of physicians and nurse practitioners fall into this because there's this kind of enmeshment that occurs. And, and I just think it's really important. We maintain the ability to treat patients properly, but not from a distance. Like I just, but something that makes us remember we're the doctor and and they're trusting us. So we really need to be careful. And, and I don't know if you see that, Teresa, in the work you're doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Teresa, about that. Specifically, you know, you're an ER doctor. And so people do come in in pain and crisis all the time. And they talk about how Young was a, quote, people pleaser. And so maybe some of this started altruistically, maybe that he just wanted to help people. How do you feel about that? And when you are dealing with these patients, do you have any special techniques that you would share with other doctors? Oh, I don't know if I have. I don't know if I have any special techniques. I think it's that balance of establishing a connection and a genuine belief in in what they're experiencing. And then it's very interesting because like you have to couple that connection, that rapport and genuine belief in them with 
a very strict boundary of it might not be true because that happens, but then to work them up completely. And then if you find a cause for them, then you treat it and you make it very objective. And so you care for them as a human being, and then you balance it with, well, let's be objective and very kind of sterile and boundaries. So it's a very technical decision um, and, and that you don't make the decision making with any emotion. You're right. That's how physicians are trained. We we need to, of course, show empathy to our patients, but we have to be thinking about what the patients need, not necessarily what they want. But I don't know, of course, Young did, certainly wasn't practicing that way. And I don't know if nurse practitioners are trained that way, rather just giving people what they want rather than what they actually need. And, you know, we do know that they have higher patient satisfaction rates in some studies, and maybe that comes back to giving people what they want, but again, not necessarily what they need. And of course, as physicians, our mantra is supposed to be do no harm as much as possible. So, and this is a case of you're, you feel like you're doing the right thing, but you're actually harming the patient. Just as a quick little thing, I'm kind of a fan of audits. What may be interesting on that is to do a sort of educational audit to see if that's taught, right? Because I know that our clinical experience, you could, emergency medicine, it could be traced back to when we learned that, but that might be interesting to look at educationally when that's taught to nurse practitioners. Yeah. And also when you talk about audits, maybe auditing your own practice to see how many opioids you're giving out. So in the case of Young, he was eventually seeing up to 50 to 85 patients a day, which is just nuts. I mean, a crazy busy day for me would be 30 in my previous practice. Now I'm 20 and that's good. So 50 to 80 a day. And many of them were on opioids in court. His attorney said it was only 25% of his patients, but the nursing board investigator said that it was the largest quantity of opioid prescriptions she had ever seen in a patient panel. So he was definitely prescribing. And, you know, that reminds me of when I was in one of my early practices, I had a partner, she was a family doctor, and she was such a kind person. She was such a trusting and believing person. And so if someone told her they had pain, she would prescribe and they would say, no, no, over the counters worked and, you know, kind of give her the story. And this was in the days in which we were taught that we should give everyone pain medicines, opioids specifically, and that we had to use a pain scale and that not treating pain could get us into trouble. And so she, like me, and we know we were all trained that way, but she really went down that road because she was such a kind-hearted person. So what happened was it was a small community and probably similar to Jackson, Mississippi, the word got out that she was a liberal prescriber. And next thing you knew, she was saying, I don't understand. Why do I have all these patients that, that, you know, she didn't get it because she didn't, you know, it didn't even occur to her that patients would do that or take advantage of her. It took her a really long time. And it was a chart audit that she realized like, whoa, whoa, I'm way out of step with my prescribing compared to other doctors. What's going on? And then kind of figured out that that was the, the problem. I will tell you this, we've talked about this education piece before, and I happen to work with a pediatric nurse practitioner. And what's fascinating is she got no training on immunizations. And I mean, zero, like somebody else will handle that is sort of what she said her schooling taught her. And here we are, pediatrics, like just doing pediatrics. Can you imagine? Like not under, not, not being taught anything about all of them, you know? And I mean, I draw my own and it just, I found it fascinating because I looked at her at one point, I was like, you have to know this stuff, like, like full stop. 
this takes time and it's going to take hours and you need to make sure you are the expert in the room on this. And so your point, Teresa, is a really interesting one. Like I actually think as we're coming across different experts and different people that are non-physicians in certain um, specialties, it would be really interesting to go back and figure out how much training did they actually have in this particular area. And, and I think that's a piece of standardization that's going to end up being really important. I mean, I can't imagine doing a primary care nurse practitioner pediatric schooling, a doctorate level, no less, not getting any training on immunizations. Well, and then that ties it back to the the Jeffrey Young case uh, is that Hippocratic Oath isn't in there. I could guarantee, I mean, we all can guarantee it. We know it's not. And there's a, there's a litany of things that aren't. Do they have to be? I don't know. That's for the marketplace of ideas to decide. But I think that we all have to understand we in the hospitals where they work, right, need to know the physicians that are hiring them need to know what was in it, what was in the education and what wasn't and what are the consequences of that. You know, that's an interesting point because Jeffrey Young was being theoretically supervised by two physicians and they actually were actually they were busted in this big sting operation along with a whole bunch of other clinicians, pharmacists, doctors and nurse practitioners, really, really horrible situation. And so there was a complicity there. So what ended up happening in this case is that another agency besides the nursing board began to investigate. That was the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Then there was more people getting concerned. One of the supervising physicians reviewed charts and realized that things were not good, withdrew from his supervising arrangement. Pharmacists began to refuse to fill prescriptions. So there was all sorts of red flags. The health department threatened to file charges against him and suggested that he surrender his license, but he did not do that. And the investigation continued for two more years until the DEA finally got involved. They went in and raided the clinic. They took 10,000 individual doses of hydrocodone. So it sounds like he had a dispensing license. On top of that, he had hydrocodone, I guess, unless he was trafficking. I don't know exactly how... My guess is patients brought them back into him. I mean, again, I'm, I'm interpreting, but when patients don't know how to get rid of things, they'll say like, oh, I don't want to have these at home. What do I do? I bet he was getting them back. And I will tell you that we don't have a way to dispense of meds. And I have people bring in meds to me all the time. And what I do is I dump them in the biohazard. I open the bottle, dump them in the biohazard. And that's actually witnessed. It's that's not what even I like- do too. Yeah. I just like, I have my, one of my colleagues or my medical assistant, literally, I write down, I count put them in the biohazard and you can't get your hand in the biohazard, which I'm really pleased about. <laughs> so kids can't or, or rescue it or whatever. Plus it went into a whole bunch of waste. Yeah. There's all sorts of needles and blood. Yes, and, yeah. That's not correct. something you would so, want to stick your hand in. in any no, way. but it, it prevents, I would say any employees or any staff or any patients from harming themselves while keeping it out of the water. And so I do that, but I, but I hand, we document and count and then it's double signed by someone. And I'm the only one like I, me and another person, I never let like two staff members do it just for, just again, for, yeah, process and accountability and all of those things. And so I suspect he was pocketing those. That's anyway, what I think it, it could be, but you know, what's interesting is he got raided by the DEA and he still didn't get shut down. He closed that particular clinic. He opened a new clinic called Genexus health and he offered mostly cosmetic treatments at this point. So he's doing Botox and fillers, which I can't imagine that that's in his scope as a family nurse practitioner. And he would see sometimes over 50 people per day. He was billing insurance and they said it was a problem in the article because he wouldn't do any documentation. So they would try to submit the bill and the insurance company wouldn't pay. And then he continued his antics, again, trying to trade sex for drugs, drugs for sex. So this went on until 2019, came before the Board of Nursing, 
and he had his license put on probation. But what's interesting is he could no longer prescribe schedule two or three controlled substances, which are opioids and uh, Adderall, but he was still allowed to prescribe testosterone, cough syrup with codeine, and I think benzodiazepines as well. So, and had he not had the next thing happen to him, he would have been allowed to get his privileges reinstated in 2020. And it was only the only thing that actually brought him down was the sting operation that happened in late in uh, 2019, in which officials swept through the area, charging 53 different medical professionals with trafficking drugs. Don't forget to mention that he actually solicited, I think it was an undercover officer for sex, essentially, and, and sex for drugs. And so let's be really clear that he definitely did that and got caught. And then he got released. This is, I mean, this just is crazy to me. He got released on bond and then continued to prescribe Xanax and Valium. There was an article about it. And so it was so bad that, and the nursing board did nothing about it, that the court, actually the Department of Justice trial attorney prosecuting him came before the judge and said to the judge that the court should do what the nursing board did not stop Young from further harming the community by prescribing dangerous substances and exploiting his patients. And the only way to ensure this is to detain him. In other words, put him in jail and not let him out on bond. And the judge revoked his bail because partly because of what he heard and partly because of some of the Facebook posts that Young had made, which they said had a, showed a propensity for violence. Mm. So a lot of really just unbelievable. The story is unbelievable to me because I can't imagine I've never heard of a story this egregious happening to a physician. I mean, there may be some, but I think it would have been stopped way before this. And it is worth mentioning, you know, this was a, a kind of a close knit town. He had a number of police officers who, who were his patients as well. And so I think what was going on is he sort of it's almost like a, a mob boss. I, I don't exactly know how that works, but it's kind of how I imagine it from the movies. There was some uh, I think that there was some intimidation uh, against one of the nursing board investigators at one point. If I go back, let me yeah, see. The, she said that people would call her house and hang up. And one time she saw yes. like a, a shadowy figure running through her yard and she felt threatened and intimidated and yeah, all sorts of things like that. I mean, like you said, really shady and scary stuff. Yeah. I just think there was a lot of shadiness in this story, which was a real credit to the reporter who did the investigative piece. But again, it's like he had his hand in enough cookie jars. I think that's part of the reason it went on for so long. And I, I think it's such a critical point that the board of medicine would have stepped in and done something. I mean, certainly the moment there's even a crime committed, the board of medicine puts the license on hold. So at least here in Washington, you know, they're very quick to do this. And I, I think that's fine. Fine. I, I just, uh, I, I don't see the same kind of response from the Board of Nursing, which is a shame. So Teresa, after you read this article, then you just, you found that they really left out that piece, the comparison to physicians, right? Yes, absolutely. They left that out because I think this could have happened with a physician, but that physician would have been investigated by the Board of Medicine and the physician yeah. would have been held to medical standards. Yeah. And you can see that you can see where, when a physician, you can go find this, go whatever state you're in, go to the board of medicine website, whatever state you're in and literally peruse in all of our free time, look through the disciplinary summaries. They are amazing. And I'm, I mean, I'm biased obviously, but um, <laughs> the reason they're, they're great is because they are so detailed and so patient-centered, when there's a medical physiology question, when there is an active medical diagnosis that's in question, the board takes their time and goes line by line, sometimes even minute by minute, 
What medication did they receive at what time? And was this appropriate? And conclusions are made about medical acts of diagnosis by a board of people who are trained in those medical acts. And the reason I use medical acts of diagnosis is because that's what nurse practitioners are doing. Despite the fact that they're nurses and despite the fact that they're regulated by a nursing board, they are doing these medical acts of diagnosis. And and I would encourage you to go to the board of nursing and see if that ever happens. You can kind of judge it by the type of consequences, like the disciplinary actions. And you can see where for the medical, they'll have remediation courses or they have uh, classes where they can send doctors to make sure that they're you know, still good at practicing medicine. And I just don't see the same thing when I compare the two. And it's also a really important point to make it clear in most of these states, the board of nursing holds a nurse to what's called the minimum acceptable standard. So yeah. again, that's a really important point that if they miss a vital sign or if they miss something that we would consider significant, they often say, well, but nobody died as a result of that missed vital sign. And so it's really this kind of minimal standard. And I would say we don't do that with the Board of Medicine. What I think is interesting is that patients have no idea about this. We we interviewed Uni Kim, the friend of of Stevie Ryan, who passed away after she was improperly treated by a nurse practitioner. And she said, she stopped us and she said, wait a minute, what do you mean board of nursing? And what do you mean he's not a doctor? And so, I mean, basically patients, I don't think the average patient really understands the difference. They just trust that the person they're going to in a white coat is going to take good care of them and has the, the best training. And that if they're not a good doctor or nurse practitioner, that someone will stop them. And unfortunately, that is not the case, at least of what we're seeing in these cases. It's taking years for any action to be taken. So this is uh, really important for patients to know about. And I think that, Teresa, I think your letter that I don't think they published it, but I wish that they would have just to point out to readers that as egregious as these acts were, and, and hopefully we won't see physicians doing it. If a physician was doing it, there's a lot more standardization and uh, quicker action to get that stopped. And if nurse practitioners are practicing independently, then perhaps they should be regulated by an agency that's more aggressive, like the Board of Medicine. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Teresa Camp-Rogers for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Barnes & Noble and at amazon.com. Uh, We would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician, please join us at physiciansforpatientprotection.org to help fight for physician-led care. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm